This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. We want to wish everyone a very happy new year, and we also want to thank you for listening to the programming podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed putting it together over the last eight months. And as we wrap up 2017 and look forward to 2018, we thought that for this last episode of the year, we'd reshare one of our favorite interviews from 2017. Back in June, we had the pleasure of having Sam Newman as our guest. Sam is the presenter of the O'Reilly video course, The Principles of Microservices, and the online training course From Monolith to Microservices. The next offering of Sam's training course will be January 8th and 9th, 2018, and you can find out more about it and register for it at Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com. Sam is also the author of the book, Building Microservices, Designing Fine-Grained Systems. And we talked to Sam about his suggestions for organizations that are considering migrating from monolith systems to microservices, the key principles for doing microservices well, how microservices can enable cost-effective scaling, and a lot more. Hope you enjoy this representation of our interview with Sam Newman. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, let's start with the basics just to set things up. Can you briefly explain what microservices are? Uh, sure. Microservices are small, independently deployable processes that communicate with each other over network boundaries. So they might communicate over things like HTTP or might communicate with each other with things like uh, message brokers, events, that sort of thing. In one of your presentations that I've seen, I thought it was interesting that you, you pretty much opened by saying microservices can make things worse, you know, just, just so that you emphasize that there are trade-offs. So how do you know if, if microservices are right for you? I would start off by thinking about the kind of organization you are. Uh, building a microservice architecture, you're building a distributed systems architecture. Uh, that comes with an awful lot of complexity. Uh, now, if you've got a, a team that's maybe never had any experience with a distributed system, you maybe only built monolithic systems, uh, just recognize that you're going to be learning an awful lot of new things. And so if you're interested in adopting a microservice architecture, I would really start with only one or two services at the beginning. I wouldn't even necessarily start that journey until I had a fairly good story around automation. Normally, the bare minimum I would suggest is that you you can check in your code, you have some form of continuous integration going on, so you've got like a suite of tests that validate your code. And I would say having a, a single line uh, uh, to be able to deploy your existing applications. Um, if you're at that level of automation, then I think absolutely give it a go and experiment, uh, but do it gradually. So you don't go all in because there are different types of pain that are going to hit you depending on the problems you have. And, and, and so much of this answer comes back down to it depends, which is an annoying answer to give. But I think you've just got to try it out. But do be very gradual in how you, uh, in, in how you, you know, adopt it. So I'd say, like, decide on one or two new services you're going to create, get them deployed uh, into production and, and see how that, it, see if it gives you the outcomes you're looking for. I mean, uh, the thing to remember is you're, you're, you're adopting microservices to get some outcome. What is the outcome? The outcome is to go faster. Try it out and see if you go faster, but go into it being aware of the fact that it will be a, a very incremental adoption process. And there are some circumstances in which what you call a monolith might actually be better, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a, a great example would be very early on in your, so if you're, if you're building a brand new product, for example, it can be quite hard for you to understand stable service boundaries. So when you get the interface between two services wrong, the cost of change is quite high. Early on, when you're working on a brand new product, it will be hard for you to identify stable service boundaries. And so for companies that are maybe starting out a brand new product offering, it's just a startup environment where you're iterating really, really quickly on the fundamentals of the product. I would not recommend a microservice architecture for that kind of situation. 
I would say you're much better. Keep it in a monolith. Iterate a lot on what the product is, the feature set. From that, you'll get the stable boundaries that give you a lot of the benefits you can then get from these independently deployable processes. Uh, the other area where I do think the microservice architectures cannot be a good fit is if your software is installed by a customer. So, you know, you're shipping software that someone is going to download and manage themselves. When you move to a microservice architecture, you push a lot of complexity into the deployment uh, sphere. Now, if you can bring in new tools to automate that process, you can mitigate that complexity. That's not something you can push onto a customer that's installing software on your behalf. And in those situations, I would also keep your software more monolithic. Uh, and then maybe what you're looking at is, is maybe making better use of, of modules to break up your monolith. So using maybe uh, build time static linking or, or deploy time dynamic linking of, say, modules like you know DLLs, jar files, that sort of thing. You talk about how microservices can allow you to better align your organization to your architecture. And um, this seems to be especially true in situations where you have a large code base or, or many teams, right? Yeah, uh, I, I think, I mean, it's often been the case that sort of IT is almost a black box and the business is seen as a black box and, and then never the twain shall meet. I think as I think organizations in general are now looking to more deeply align their business functions with their IT functions so that they can move more quickly. They can use IT as a way of making money. That's been the big shift for many organizations over the last 10 years. Uh, but when we have kind of quite large monolithic systems that are maybe serving multiple different business cases, it can be very hard to align that to two or three or five different parts of your organization at once. By breaking those monolithic systems apart, you give yourself a bit more flexibility to say, okay, this part of our of our software, that's going to align to this part of the business. And now the people that look after those services, they can become domain experts in that area of the business. They can become more closely aligned, build those relationships. And that is something you can do to an extent with modules, for example, but you don't get that independent deployability aspect for, for most technology platforms. The other challenge you have to deal with is, is traditionally when we've implemented service-oriented architectures in the past, the way we've broken apart our, our, our sort of monolithic systems into services have often been around technical boundaries. Uh, you know, the, the traditional uh, presentation layer, business layer, data access layer. And that sort of decomposition doesn't really give you the ability to align those things to a business unit. Um, and so the, that's why the microservice architectures are optimizing around breaking things around business boundaries, because it's much easier to get that sort of, uh, that sort of alignment with your, with your business organization. Sam, what is Conway's law and how do microservices take advantage of this? Conway's law is, is an observation made by Melvin Conway many years ago, and, and, and he, he sort of noticed that organizations that create software end up creating software that are sort of a, a reflection of the organization itself, specifically how the organization communicates with each other. Uh, to give you a really concrete real world example, I worked on a, uh, a classified ads system um, for uh, a company in the UK, and they originally were a print company, and they had a bit of their organization that handled trade. That's our people who are placing adverts. These are often things like car dealers. And they had a, a part of their organization called the core of their organization. That was literally where people were manually typing things in to get adverts displayed on, in their print. And then you had the consumer part of the business where they handled the public-facing adverts that went out. And, there are, and that was a print company that had that structure. Their architecture that they came up with, their new system, mirrored that architecture. You had a service, you had a whole division of the organization that created a whole set of services around that organizational structure. And so you had this sort of 
three big blocks of architecture that you always had to deal with. Well, all the information comes into trade. It then flows into core. It goes from core into consumer. And we were looking at trying to change the architecture of that system, but realized that this architecture that they created was so uh, aligned with their organizational structure that you, you couldn't divorce those two things. And, and um, there's been further studies that looked into the impact of Conway's law, showing uh, you know, different types of domains, how this, this plays out. Uh, another famous uh, study that was done on the effects of Conway's law compared financial planning software done by an open source distributed team and a similar type of software done by a, a, a sort of a vendor, sort of a commercial vendor. The commercial vendor had a co-sourced delivery team that all developers worked together in the same location. And the software they created was more monolithic and more tightly coupled. The distributed team ended up creating loosely coupled modular software because those people that are geographically distant tend to want to work on a little part of that problem space themselves. And as you see this all the time, you see the you see Conway's law being violated in some ways, where you get a large code base that's been worked on by lots of people in lots of different geographical locations. You know how difficult that can be. On the other hand, you take that large code base, if you can break that up into different parts, so say the team in Boston owns this bit, the team in New York owns that part, the team in Dublin owns this part, you sort of get those, those communication pathways working with the architecture. Everything sort of flows from that. Um, and, and so you see this coming out time and time again. And now I think as people are more aware of the impact of Conway's law, they're sort of using it now as a, almost in reverse. So certainly when, when Netflix and uh, were planning their, you know, their organizational structure, they created small teams, partly because they wanted more autonomy, but also because they wanted a, a decomposed modular architecture. Uh, so it's a really interesting sort of observation that's it's, it's a truism that's played out time and time again. And, and multiple studies have, have, have sort, of, uh, sort of clarified that, that understanding and, and, and confirmed that, that sort of original observation that Melvin Conway made all those years ago. And in talking about the difference between a monolith and microservices, an example you've given in the past is um, when you have to make a one-line change. Can, can you walk us through that? Yeah, this is actually what led me to Microsoft in the first place was my kind of interest in, in how I ship software more quickly. So, you know, if you've got a one-line change that you want to make uh, to, say, a, a large uh, monolithically deployed code base. So when I talk about monolith, it's like a, it's a single unit of deployment, really, in a way. Uh, if I want to deploy, make a one-line change, I still got to deploy that entire monolith. Now, what comes with that is all the ceremony of that monolithic system being deployed, uh, any you know, last-minute uh, testing that needs to be carried out. Effectively, you know, there's some inherent risk that comes from changing that whole unit, even though I only want to deploy one line of code. With a more um, fine-grained architecture, so a fine-grained distributed systems architecture, like a monolithic architecture, the idea is that if I only want to change one line of code, I only have to change that service that has that one line of code. Everything else I can just leave as is, leave where it is. Um, and so the hope is that it makes it easier for you to make those small changes because you're only replacing that component, that service that needs to be changed, which should hopefully reduce the risk of deployment um, and reduce the cost of those deployments as well. Can you explain how microservices might allow a company to scale more or, or to scale more cost efficiently? Yeah, uh, well, there's, there's sort of scale in, on two axes that I think could help here with microservices. The first is sort of like numbers of people. I think we've been, most of us who have been developers understand that code bases sort of have a feel like they have a surface area. The more people you've got in the same space, the more you're likely to tread on each other's toes. You know, I make a refactoring that breaks somebody else's work when they try and check in and they have a big merge problem. And so uh, when you break apart service bound 
these larger code bases into smaller code bases or smaller service boundaries, it's more easy to give people ownership of those individual assets. That seems to naturally increase the surface area of code. You can have more developers working on this overall problem space, but there's not going to be as much collision in a giant sort of shared asset like a single shared service or a single shared code base. Uh, Instead, they're allowed to coalesce around those individual services. Scaling also comes into place when you think about literally scaling to handle volume or scaling to improve resilience in things. You know, by breaking apart uh, a monolithic system into individual services, those individual services could be scaled up as required. I could run, you know, uh, my pricing engine on multiple service uh, on multiple separate physical machines, uh, allowing it to handle more load. On the other hand, I could take another part of my system and run it on a smaller machine because it doesn't need as much load as possible. It doesn't need as much load. Uh, and so if you're working, say, on a cloud platform or on a virtualization platform where you can resize your machines, you can actually effectively right-size each service rather than sort of scaling everything in one giant box like you are with a monolithic system. Uh, now, to be fair, if you're looking to scale just to increase your, your, the load you can handle, increase the throughput of your system, there's absolutely scaling techniques that don't require microservices, but microservices open up that other level of efficiency that you can gain in terms of scaling and also cost-effective scaling. The other angle around cost-effectiveness certainly comes with SaaS-based companies because by breaking apart monolithic systems into microservices systems, they uh, increase the possibility of making some of those services multi-tenancy. So in other words, all of their customers could share a service while keeping other maybe more sensitive parts of that stack single-tenancy. Uh, allowing them to have more customers supported by a smaller amount of hardware. Now, in your video and book, you identify eight key principles for doing microservices well. Maybe we can highlight one or two of them here. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the principle of focusing on consumers first. Can can you tell us why you consider that to be so important? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of missteps that uh, get made in, in service-oriented architectures in general, of, of which microservices are just a flavor uh, of service-oriented architecture. Uh, and that is that, that we sometimes, those of us working on a service, can we, we sort of think inside out. We often you know, build from a data model to our code, and then we come up with an a- the API that we're going to expose as sort of the last thing we do. Uh, in reality, the interface a service exposes to the outside world, to other services, is no different to a user interface. And I think we've shifted how we think about creating user interfaces now. We think, okay, a customer is going to use this. So I need to think about how they're going to interact with my service, come up with a design that then actually influences how I implement my software. Um, And I don't see that happening enough when it comes to uh, service design, contract design. Your service exists to be used by somebody else. Otherwise, if no one's calling it, it's not a service. And so therefore, you should actually treat the people, your consumers, like they're your customers. And that starts with you know, asking them what they want, having a conversation with them. Even knowing they exist is a step up for many organizations I work with who don't even know who's calling their service. And that makes it very hard for you to evolve your service in such a way that it becomes easy to use, uh, that it supports the, the requirements your customers have. Any of the other principles that perhaps need more light shed on them? I, I'm, to be honest with you, I think since the book, the one I keep coming back to in a way that they all, that all the roads lead to is, is this idea of independent deployability. Uh, this is sort of, if you look at the reasons people adopt microservice architecture, so much of it comes back down to that one sort of key enabling attribute of a, of a microservice architecture. And I, and I feel that 
if you can if you create a systems architecture where you do have that characteristic of independent deployability where you can make a change to a service and deploy that service by itself into a production environment without having to redeploy anything else so many other benefits flow from that and, and it probably follows that you've done a lot of the other things that i talk about and so that independent deployability is what i come back to again and again and again and that's really the things that i, I i'd love people to optimize for and if there's only one thing they remember from my, my talks my videos my books whatever else uh, it is that attribute that if you can get to independent deployability of your services most of the benefits that people want from microservice architectures are going to are going to come for you let's talk about microservices and security. Is it true that there's kind of a dichotomy and that microservices can actually be both more protective and yet possibly open up more vulnerabilities? Uh, yeah, I, I, exactly as you put it. You know, I, I, it's the classic double-edged sword. Um, you know, uh, it, straight away, if you think about what, what we've done when we go from a monolithic system to a microservice system is, is that we've taken information that used to flow within a that used to just used to move within a process so between things inside memory inside a single process on a single machine um, and we've made that information now flow across networks that's open that's just drastically increased the surface area for malicious uh, parties to sniff information they can now observe information they could potentially manipulate that information uh, unless you carry out protection so you actually have to now think about how you protect that information in transit you also have to think about how you maybe restrict people calling your services once you're out there because, you know, okay, I'll protect my information as it flows over a network, but anybody could actually connect to a service and ask the information they need. You know, I don't have to hack your database if I could just make API calls. The flip side to all of that, of course, is that when you move to a microservice architecture, especially if you've done what I advise, which is also to break apart your databases, so, you know, services own their own data, is that what you do is you, you avoid the, uh, you know, you don't have all your eggs in one basket. You've now got your information is stored in multiple different places, which means that a, a malicious party that wants to get hold of your PII has to maybe sniff around for it. It's not all in one location. It means you can more target your your concerns, your protections around those services that, that require it. For example, those services storing your PII. It's multiple different machines that have to be attacked and hacked by an, a, a malicious party. Um, you have multiple perimeters at which you can protect your application. Uh, and so I think my, my, my sort of take home from all of this and, and talking to organizations is I think that if you have a fairly naive posture around security in general, you're likely to be worse off when adopting a microservice architecture. On the other hand, if you're somewhat savvy about uh, thinking about a proper application security posture, you, a microservice architecture is going to open up a lot of possibilities for you to build even more secure systems. Sam, a couple of times earlier in the conversation, you've brought up service-oriented architecture, SOA. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the relationship, so to speak, between microservices and SOA. You say that microservices should be thought of as a specific approach to SOA. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the ideas behind service-oriented architecture are, are pretty sound. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's fundamentally, you know, about breaking down big systems into independent services that can communicate over networks. Um, it's When we were start, initially started talking about service-oriented architecture, which would have been the mid-90s, the term became popular, really caught on in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, that, that was, the, the idea was sound and, and the outcome we were looking for, sort of the same outcomes we're looking for out of a microservice architecture. But what happened, I think, early on was that at the same time that SOA was being talked about, uh, we sort of started adopting technologies coming out of the web services movement, things growing out of things like, uh, you know, SOAP, the work I've done at Microsoft with SOAP and things like that. Uh, and that was sort of an approach that was maybe more optimized about specific technology approaches. 
um, using, for example, you know, cert, you know, sort of certified approaches using adopting standards that had been come up with. You're looking at sort of WS star standards. And I think there's a lot of great work done in the web services movement. Some of the WS star stuff is really interesting stuff within those specifications. But but ultimately that approach and I think that that way of thinking more in terms of, you know, what what aspects of my system can I commoditize? Can I buy from a vendor uh, implementation of these standards? And also, I think, use of what were some technologies, although they were called web services technologies, they didn't really use the web that well. Ultimately, that way of adopting a service-oriented architecture using a lot of those web services approaches didn't actually deliver the benefits that people were looking for. And so I think during that, that time, that early days of the SOA movement, if you could call it that, I think we started to learn new techniques or we sort of just distill out the important things. And so microservices are an approach to service-oriented architecture. It doesn't really talk about technology. It really talks about outcomes and, it, and it's a bit more prescriptive. It says, you know, we're modeling things around a business domain because that's actually, we think is really important for some of the reasons I've already shared, uh, but really talks about this idea of independent deployability. And that's, that's the thing we're optimizing for rather than talking about technology and technology is almost not the most important thing here. And so, yeah, thinking about, uh, I think other people have said that microservices are just SOA done right. Uh, I think that's absolutely fine. I think other people have said, I was doing this stuff when SOA was around. And it's like, well, great. Then I guess you had great architectures. I think the reality is, though, there were a lot of SOA architectures that were out there and are still out there now that were developed with different goals in mind and were optimizing for different things that didn't really deliver on the business benefits. And so what I've been really trying to do with Microsoft's architecture is talk much more in terms of the benefits it can have for a business uh, and then talk about how the technology can help you achieve that rather than starting with the technology. Another thing I wanted to get your thoughts on is modularity and the use of OSGI as opposed to going the microservices route. I mean, let's be clear, an awful lot of the benefits that I talk about with regards to microservices, not all of them, but a chunk of them, you could also say apply to modular software, software that's created in terms of modules that work together. Uh, and these ideas go all the way back to the work done by David Parnas in the early 70s, work that very few people I speak to have ever read, which is a really, really unfortunate. Even those that have got computer science degrees, very few people have actually read those things. This idea that we uh, group software into, we code into modules, are, you know, a running process then consists of multiple modules. Those modules have well-defined boundaries between each other. They practice, you know, uh, information hiding and encapsulation. So Dave Parnas himself actually, you know, suggests that when you use a module, you shouldn't even know the source code of the module because that can create coupling between them. Uh, what sort of happened, though, is that those ideas have been around for a long time, but very few people, I think, actually create modular software. I think part of it is the nature of our tools. Our tools make it very quick and easy to violate say things like uh, visibility levels, uh, for example, in, in code. I also think a lot of our languages have quite weak concepts, uh, have quite weak support for modules. I mean, if you look at the today in Java, for example, you know, I, I've been coding on Java since the 0.91 uh, beta. The, the, still the best we've got is package packages. And that package construct is a very weak construct inside the Java ecosystem. It's nothing like the kind of module systems that are available in other spaces. Uh, and so a lot of the things that people would like from a module system, like, for example, the ability to change a module at runtime, aren't baked into the platforms that, that many of us are using. I think OSGI, you mentioned, I think is a, was a valiant attempt to bring pluggability to the JVM. I mean, we should remember where OSGI comes from. I mean, OSGI was not designed to be a general purpose modular system. It originally was created to handle plugins for an IDE for, for, for the Eclipse project. And that's sort of where OSGI kind of came out from. 
and then grew into this project to bring sort of that more, some of the modularization capabilities we have from other platforms to the Java ecosystem. Uh, fundamentally, though, you know, they're trying with, a, with effectively what is a framework to bring things in that really need to be baked into the language itself. Uh, and so theoretically, I should be able to change a module and deploy a new version of that module onto an OSGI runtime, and it should just, be, it should just work. Um, unfortunately, there are all kinds of gotchas around how OSGI modules are written and, and, and the framework itself, which means it's not always obvious to you when that will work and when it won't. And I think part of that is just the limitations of trying to implement a module system after the fact. I think many of us have been hopeful that these kinds of uh, hot deployment capabilities will come to Java eventually, as one example. Um, but we're still waiting, and it looks like with the changes in the Java, the Java module uh, jigsaw project, right. that's going to be delayed at least a couple of versions. I mean, if you want to look at a system that's got modules right, you look at Erlang, which was built from the ground up to be a, a, a language and a runtime for building distributed systems. You know, they have the ability there to hot deploy new versions of modules to coexist different versions of modules if one's still live. Well, you know, all of those sorts of things. It does some amazing things. And I think if we had access to platform uh, to to language runtimes that had those kinds of real really uh, sort of rich modular deployment capabilities and modular you know uh, then I think we wouldn't need to use microservices as much. But I think that we are where we are ultimately. Well, Sam, as we get close to, to wrapping up here, let's let's look ahead if we can. Back in April, uh, your talk at the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference was titled "Moving to Microservices and Beyond." Can you talk about the beyond part of that? Oh yes, well it's. I, I mean, the beyond is kind of interesting. Right? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, some of the stuff I'm you know starting to look at now a lot more is is sort of the the, the serverless stuff, and specifically, I think you know obviously service covers a, a gamut of options, but the 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 work being done in the area of function as a service really has sort of shifting how we think a little bit about deployments and and functions and all that that sort of stuff uh, because you know it, it's like I'm now writing small snippets of code that only get launched when something happens like an event comes in or an API call gets made uh, and on the one hand this is really empowering you know I don't actually have to think about a permanent running process it can be better from a security point of view it can be more cost effective. But at the same time, it opens up a whole load of questions. And so I did a talk recently at CraftConf called uh, Sir, you know, uh, Confusion and Analyst Serverless because I said, you know, certainly when you start looking at hybrid architectures, you, know, you take uh, an existing system that isn't serverless and you start moving to these service platforms, there are a whole load of gotchas that emerge. And so I think, you know, that's the one angle of the beyond. I think the other thing that's happening a lot more now, which I'm hoping will start to mitigate some of the complexities of adopting microservice architecture are more platforms to support services. We're talking here of things like Kubernetes, things like Cloud Foundry. We're getting better tooling now from especially people like the Weave. Uh, people like Weave have got some great software for helping you understand how, what, how your system is connected and running together. And also the emergence of uh, sort of a class of framework that's almost sitting at a higher level of abstraction than, a, than maybe the container as a service stuff like Kubernetes and Mesos gives you. We're looking at things like service fabrics. So like the service fabric, you know, I think it's called app fabric now is what Microsoft call it on Azure. You've new got new uh, Isito projects coming from, from the Kubernetes world, which are sort of saying, okay, well, I'm not just going to run your container. There's other things that you need to think about. So I'm going to handle service discovery for you. I'm going to handle, you know, tracing for you. So you don't have to worry about it. And those, I think, if done well, 
will make these architectures easier to adopt and actually almost allow us that high level abstraction when we're not even talking about services and containers anymore. I think if done badly, they could just be another form of of like overly restrictive vendor lock-in. And so I'm really interested to see how that space shakes out in the, in the next couple of years. Well, Sam, this has been great. If if listeners want to find out more about you and what you're up to, uh, where can they go online? Yeah, I mean, the um, best place to catch up is uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Sam Newman. I, I tweet uh, about all things. Feel free to ask me questions on microservices there. You can also go to my website, which is uh, samnewman.io. Uh, and if you also go to the Safari bookshelf, um, which I'm hoping you all should have accounts on by now, you can get my books, you can get a load of videos I've done, and you can also find like an online training course I've been doing with uh, O'Reilly once a month, which is talking about how you move from a monolithic system to a microservice system. Sam Newman, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. That was our interview with Sam Newman from June of 2017. And once again, you can find out about Sam's upcoming live online training course, From Monolith to Microservices, which is being held January 8th and 9th, 2018, as well as Sam's video and book on microservices by visiting Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so via iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher so that you never miss an episode. Happy New Year, everyone, and please continue to join us for more great interviews in 2018. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Weil. (music) 